Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And I'm Scott Peterson. And this is Episode 7 of Inside Quizzing. A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. And of course, I say every week is is exciting, and of course, this week is no different. Uh, we have another audience question, uh, this one coming in from Andrew, that... Uh, we're both very excited at, to answer, and, and also, it's a really intriguing question. Um, it's actually, a, a, the more I, I read it over and the more I think about it, the more I'm intrigued by it. Um, it it's definitely thought-provoking. We want to talk a little bit about Great West uh, International question type requirements. We will resume our material deep dive uh, this week into 2 Corinthians uh, chapters 8 and 9. Then in our rules corner, we're sort of continuing the the thing that we did in episode 6, where Scott goes through a few different questions, and we kind of dive into the structure of those questions, the legality and the practicality of those questions. If we have time, we'll talk a little bit about quiz mastering. I want to talk a little bit about the uh, CBQZ app, the application, and John materials, and a few other things. But with all that said, let's get started with our first uh, agenda item, uh, the question that came in from Andrew, and uh, Andrew writes as follows. I know you guys just talked about challenging, but I have a slightly more specific question. What should a captain do when they or their teammate gets a question called correct, some other captain challenges that it should be incorrect, and the first captain agrees? Do you rebut on behalf of your team, despite not believing in it being correct, or do you agree and potentially take away points from your team? And if you decide to defend your team, how do you come up with something that works since you actually believe the opposite of what you are saying? This is a phenomenal question <laughs> um, because there's a lot of different ways to approach it. But uh, Scott, what are your sort of initial thoughts there? Oh, man, where to start? I think my, my first thought would be to kind of explain something about myself, and that's I'm very, very competitive. And I've learned that... Um, I kind of try to find any advantage that I can, even if it's not something that everyone everyone would consider to be part of the structure of a competition. Um, and so I'm always kind of looking for an edge. And so I know that when I was a quizzer and a captain, and I loved everything about Bible quizzing, and it hit all of my competitive buttons, that I I viewed um, – say, a quiz master not knowing the rulebook as well as I did or another captain not knowing the rulebook or the material as well as I did as just another way for me to get ahead in the competition. And so I would totally try to use the rulebook almost as a weapon, right, um, to get whatever end benefited me the most. And so I always took the standpoint of I will challenge and I will rebut in a way to benefit my team regardless of what I actually think is the best ruling or the most correct ruling. So as you can see, I took a very, I took a very hard line. And I guess, you, I mean, maybe it, it's me being too nice to myself saying that I've matured, but I now view, view there to be less scenarios that you should take such a hard line when you're challenging. And actually, as time goes on, I, I see that challenging to have somebody else counted incorrect is rarely actually beneficial to your team, even if you succeed. Because most often, when you, if you are successful and challenging to have someone else counted incorrect, it wastes a question, quote-unquote wastes a question. And so there's just one fewer question in a quiz for everyone to get. Most often, the person you're challenging against is a good quizzer, and they are going to keep trying to get jumps, and you've just taken them one step back from getting a quiz out. 
Um, and also errors just hurt the flow of a quiz, even if it's another team airing. And so I've kind of come all the way around to the belief that even if you're taking a very, very competitive standpoint, um, there's not a ton of situations where it's beneficial to challenge and have someone else counted incorrect. Now, that's not quite the question that Andrew was asking. He's asking, what if you think, you know, your team is actually incorrect and you're left to defend them um, or not defend them, in essence? And it kind of comes down to what feels best to you. I mean, if if you look at the rule book and you think objectively they're incorrect and you either don't want to give a rebuttal or want to give a rebuttal almost against your team, I think that's totally fine. I think the point of quizzing from an official's point of view is to is to make the right ruling. Um, now, from a quizzer's point of view, maybe your highest goal is to win. And so especially if it's a, a subjective type of ruling, like on context or did the quizzer provide enough information to be counted correct, um, there are definitely ways you can persuasive, persuasively argue for your point of view, even if the arguments um, on average are stronger for the for the opposing point of view, if you state the rulebook well, demonstrate you know the material well and are and are and are articulate, you can be very convincing as a quizzer. Um, but I find that quizzes run best when people are getting questions right, and I I really do like to challenge four other teams to have them have their questions counted correct if I think that's the correct ruling, because I think it helps the flow of the quiz, um, and I think ultimately it does help my own team. Yeah, I tend to agree. Um, I look at I approach this question from kind of the judicial mindset, I suppose. Um, I'm, I'm sort of think of the the quizmaster as the ultimate judge, even though he or she is not the answer judge. And in our you know local system, our district system, they they trump the answer judge. But uh, I'm sort of envisioning a you know court of law where you've got two lawyers, or in in our case with three teams, you have three lawyers who are arguing a point uh, uh, against a judge. And if you know you're a lawyer representing your team in a, in a sense, your team is your client. And so I can totally see the argument to say, well, you want to present the best argument for your team possible in a particular context. I don't think there's anything unreasonable or unethical about doing that to basically say, you know, I'm, I don't necessarily agree with this, but I'm going to come up with the most reasonable, logical, best possible way to frame it in, in, in a positive way for my team, you know, in, in whatever way that happens. And maybe you're grasping at straws and certainly quiz masters, uh, are, are going to be aware of that when, when you're grasping at straws, we can tell. Um, so I wouldn't necessarily recommend doing that. It's probably easier just to say, yeah, I, I don't necessarily have anything to add or um uh, yeah i wouldn't restate necessarily what the what the original ruling was uh, uh, that's actually you know scott last week you were talking about one of your pet peeves where a quizzer will uh simply restate what was already in your head uh that's kind of similar to you know my little pet peeve where you know if somebody is is rebutting a challenge they'll simply restate the ruling uh and it's like well no i i need a little bit more information than that you know give me give me some theory behind why you want to defend what you're defending that sort of thing that being said so that being said, there is a situation I'm remembering, actually more than one situation I'm remembering, where teams were challenging against each other or teams were challenging a ruling, that, that sort of thing. I, I believe there was a team that, that was called incorrect on a question 
uh, it was challenged, that captain challenged and said, I'd like to challenge uh, to, and provided a reason. And the other two captains actually, uh, in their rebuttal opportunities, simply agreed with the first captain uh, instead of challenging against or, or rebutting against the original challenge. And I really appreciate that as I was a coach at the time in that particular uh, quiz, but I appreciate when that takes place. So, you know, it's like I, I, I'm sort of of many different minds of this. On one hand, I really appreciate the strong competition. I think the reason that uh, one of the great reasons why quizzing is so great is because of that air of competition, the feeling of, of friendly competition between teams. And we want to encourage that. And, and in a competition, yes, you want to try your best at every avenue to try to squeak out a few extra points here, a few extra points there. And challenging is absolutely a critical part of that. Uh, there's also the other part of me that appreciates when a team uh, says, yeah, you know, they, they did say it correctly or, uh, or no, our team didn't get that uh, particularly, particular thing correct. It's almost like, um, you know, a, a game of football and somebody steps uh, uh, out of bounds and says, yeah, I, 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 I agree with the ruling on the field. I stepped out of bounds. Yeah. And I think, I think being aware of the situation can also be helpful. You know, if it's early in a quiz meet or an early in a quiz and maybe your team's up by a lot and the opposing quizzer um, is not a very experienced quizzer, it's probably not necessary to to be ruthless in a challenge, you know, to either help your team out or, or whatnot. But I always enjoyed as the meets went on and especially once you get into finals when individual averages now no longer count, everyone in the quizzes usually very competitive and very experienced that um, it was a lot of fun for me to grind out the quizzes with the other um, contestants. We were fighting for questions. We employed a lot of strategy to try to maximize our points and minimize the other team's points. And along with that were some, you know, very incisive challenges um, on subjective type rulings that would have lengthy challenges and a lengthy rebuttal. And it was experienced captains kind of grinding it out. And I, I had a ton of fun with that. I loved it when other captains would challenge and I would get the opportunity to rebut. It just it felt like a really a really great competition to me. Yeah. So going specifically to Andrew's scenario, he talks about, you know, uh, his team, let's say uh, somebody on his team gets a question correct. Uh, it's called correct. A, an opposing captain challenges that it should be incorrect, and he believes that yeah, the challenge applied is uh, is is valid, and in fact the the correct ruling should be overruled. I think in that specific scenario, I'd I'd almost encourage. I, I think I would want the captain, the first captain, uh, to do his best, uh, his or her best to uh, support the correct ruling. I simply, I mean, as a as a judge making that ruling. Uh, I, I want to try to hear as many points of view as possible, and I certainly want to try to hear robust argument from both sides. But at the end of the day, one thing I wanted to sort of add to sort of this challenge thing, and it kind of takes it off topic a little bit from, from Andrew's question in particular, I want to encourage, like last week we talked about encouraging the idea of, of challenging more than what we've seen in the district, at least uh, so far, uh, this particular season. Uh, the other thing is, even if you don't have an opportunity to challenge, if you're just confused about a, a particular ruling, it doesn't hurt to ask. I think, you know, during the quiz may not be necessarily the best time to ask about it, although you can certainly, you know, say like, you know, what was the reference on that question? Or, you know, was what was the word that you were looking for if it was like a unique word and uh, or if it wasn't a unique word and it was um, uh 
you know, they were, they were providing, uh, synonyms and I wasn't really sure. So I let their time run out to the 30 and then I decided their synonym was close enough. Then it's kind of like, well, what was the actual unique word you were, or, or not non-unique word? What was the actual word, the synonym that you were looking for? Uh, you know, those sorts of questions I think are, are completely fine. Just be careful about asking them because once they're asked, uh, you wouldn't be able to challenge. Uh, after you inquire for information, but short little things like that, I think during the quiz are fine. But in particular, after the quiz is over with, uh, you know, there, there's a fair bit of activity that happens at the officials table right after a, a quiz, but you'll notice it's predominantly focused around sort of the, the scorekeeper and coaches end of the table. The quiz master isn't, is doing a few things, but you know, getting set up for the next quiz and so forth. But I usually have, at least in my room, uh, a few minutes where, you know, if you come over and you want to talk for 15 to 30 seconds, 45 seconds, whatever on, you know, Hey Griffin, you know, on question 12, what was that thing about? What, why did you make that ruling that particular way? Uh, I, I very much encourage folks to inquire of their, of their uh, quiz masters and, and ask questions. And, and if you can't do it during a quiz, you know, after a quiz, between a quiz, uh, these sorts of things are, are perfectly acceptable. Definitely. I, I always love that opportunity to talk to the quizzers. Well, any other ideas for Andrew there? Not really. I don't think there's an objective answer, but I think um, you're you're not really going to be wrong when you're def- if you're defending your team, and you're also not going to be wrong if you're trying to get the best ruling and the most correct ruling. And I think there's a lot of right answers. I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, talk to us a little bit about Great West uh, question type requirements. So, with the new updates to the rulebook, roughly about a year ago. Um, there are new question type minimum and maximum requirements that we decided not to adopt within PNW, but we are going to be using them at Great West and at internationals. And so uh, I'm just going over them now, and I'm reminded that there are a few more changes than I was initially remembering. But, for example, on interrogative questions, there can be anywhere from 8 to 12 in a 20-question quiz, um, including A's and B's. But at Great West, there can be a minimum of 9 and a maximum of 16 for interrogative questions. For quote questions, instead of the PNW 1 to 2 at Great West, there's going to be 2 to 3. Actually, no. Looks like there's going to be 3 to 4. 3 to 4. So that's kind of Because this is an epistle year, isn't it, Griffin? Corinthians. Yeah, yeah. Reference questions within PNW, it's 3 to 5. But at Great West, there's going to be 3 to 7. Multiple answers is 1 to 2 within PNW. But at Great West, it's going to be... One to two. Now, are those, is that one to two pure multiple answers or multiple answer reference? It is pure multiple answers. So reference multiple answers do not count toward the multiple answer question type requirement. So that's, that's a nice change for quizzers that are specializing in multiple answers because you could have a quizzer specializing in multiple answers who does not know references. And so if both the multiple answers that came up were of the reference variety, they would kind of be cheated out of their question type. So we've taken steps to make that not be the case. And then it looks like I'm missing finish questions. Finish. Um, so it's two to three within PNW, but it's going to be three to four uh, at Great West. So the changes are very, very slight. Um, I expect all the quizzes to be generated in a um, valid manner. So I wouldn't, if you're, if you're going to be a captain at Great West, I wouldn't worry yourself about needing to challenge about it not hitting the minimums and maximums. I wouldn't worry about that at all. But if there are certain types that you like to target as a quizzer, it would be useful to know how the minimums and maximums are changing, and that might inform some different strategy you might have. All right, sounds good. Well, shall we uh, move into our deep dive? Yes, looking at right. 2 Corinthians 8-9. to 9. 
Exactly. So, uh, what would you have any? What kind of thoughts do you have there? I need to bring it up, but I seem to remember that Second Corinthians eight had over twenty verses in it. It did. It does. Twenty four. Twenty four. So, if you're a reference quizzer, be aware for those references that could crop up in the twenties, which are which is an extra syllable that you will not know the verse on. Uh, but chapter 9 is quite short, only 15 verses. So if you hear a CVR from Second Corinthians 9, you could probably jump very, very fast and get the whole verse number, and then you'll know where to strike out in your quoting. Um, going through the specific verses, Second Corinthians 9.2 is one of the longer verses in the material. It is the 30th longest verse in the material. And Second Corinthians 9.5 is... Almost as long. It is one word shorter. Along with that, 2 Corinthians 9.10 has five unique words in it, which is quite high. It's in the top 15 uh, verses or so as far as number of unique words in it. And looking at each of those unique words, I think it's very reasonable to expect a question to start either with that unique word or one word before. Because not all unique words lend themselves to a really good interrogative question, but in Second Corinthians nine ten they do quite quite well. So I I think Second Corinthians nine would be a great chapter to memorize for all quizzers. It's only fifteen verses. Um, looks like there's a lot of unique stuff in it, and I think it could be pretty manageable. Yeah, and in particular, I I, I totally agree. Nine is a a huge target, or should be a huge target of your memorization. In particular, take a look at nine nine. There's a finish this that's there. Uh, you know, there's really not that many finish this is in the material. And, uh, so if you're, you know, a new quizzer just getting into it, uh, I know there's some quizzers who are, you know, uh, extraordinarily gifted at, uh, uh, key verse, uh, jumping and are doing very well this year. But, uh, don't be daunted by them because you're not gonna, you're not gonna necessarily be quizzing against them every, uh, every single quiz. If you focus yourself on those finish this is, I think you'll be able to pick up quite a number of them uh, when they come up. They don't necessarily come up every quiz every, uh, in all you know all quizzes that are there, but when they do come up, uh, there's a great opportunity there. I mean, nine nine is a great example. They have freely scattered uh, their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. It's very short. It's fairly easy to memorize, uh, and you should be able to lock it in with the nine nine reference and be pretty much good to go there. The other thing that sort of struck me, I think this was in Eight. Where was it? Yeah. So in eight, chapter eight, verse twenty-three. Um, there are certain times where, uh, you know, Scott, I think you've mentioned this before. Maybe you have on the podcast. I know you've mentioned it to me in just in conversations that we've had about different ways to memorize and things that were, you know, everybody memorizes a little bit differently, and certain things work better for some and less well for others. Uh, but one idea I think you've mentioned is the idea of, of getting in the habit of trying to write pra your own practice questions. And it kind of puts you in the mindset of, of not just how to memorize, but, but what kind of ways those words are going to be spoken of. And as you're going through chapter eight and you come to, uh, verse 23, it's difficult for me to, to look at verse 23 without jumping up and down uh, with chapter verse reference questions, uh, multiple answer chapter verse reference questions in particular. You know, um, you know, as for Titus, he is my partner and coworker among you, right? So he is what? Um, uh, my partner and coworker among you. And then, uh, they are what? They are representatives of the churches and an honor to Christ. And so, you know, there's a couple of, uh, great questions that are there. But then similar to what you were talking about in, in chapter nine, there's a lot of really great unique word 
questions that can come out of both these chapters. Avoid what? Avoid any criticism of the way we administer this liberal gift. Liberal what? Uh, you know, welcomed what? Chosen by whom? Uh, it's just like virtually every unique word has a, 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 a pretty good set of, uh, questions that can be pulled out of it. Uh, let's see. What was there something else that I was looking at? One point on that, Griffin, is, yeah. um, you have to be very careful about how you're searching the material because in that, that, uh, case you brought up in 2 Corinthians 8.23, they are is actually a chapter, um, unique phrase. And so they are what is actually a chapter reference, multiple yeah, answer. Absolutely. Whereas he is what, the phrase he is appears elsewhere in the same chapter, which makes it a chapter verse reference, multiple answer. Yeah, and that and can I be think very tricky. It can be, but I think this example, and just if you can fully understand as a quizzer why he is what in 823 is a chapter verse reference, multiple answer, and why they are what is a chapter reference, multiple answer, if you understand that, you understand so much more about reference questions than most people. And I, honestly, I think reference questions are probably the least uh, jumped on questions. Do you track any stats about that? No, I don't have stats on a question-by-question question basis. Okay. I'm always curious about it. It feels like reference questions are the least jumped on in general, but uh, it's hard to tell. It's, I, I have no empirical data about it. And I think we've kind of mentioned these in a few of these different podcast episodes, but whether you want to look at multiple answers or finish this is or – quote these two verses where it's the only quote these two in a given chapter. Like there's some opportunities with a little bit of study and preparation for you to snatch questions away um, and be prepared to jump much faster than really anyone else is willing to jump. Well, so let's jump into the rules corner a bit. Uh, Scott, why don't you take it away with, uh, you've got a handful of these, about four of these uh, different ones, similar to what we did last week. Yeah, and uh, I don't know to what extent you've combed through them, Griffin, but I'm, I'm always interested to get another Quizmaster's thoughts on um, a situation that I ran across because every single meet you're going to come up come across something that you really haven't encountered before. I can let you know with great pride that I did not do my homework and I did not read through your list. Oh, okay. So, so I, I am completely fresh. All right. Well, here we go. I asked a quote question from 2 Corinthians 7.1, which starts off, therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends. Well, the quizzer jumped and started quoting, therefore, since we have these promises, brothers and sisters, and then paused, then started over and quoted the verse correctly. And I counted them correct. And I was wondering if you think saying brothers and sisters is enough to count the quizzer incorrect for going out of context. It is not, in my opinion. Um, so brothers and sisters is, you know, three words. It is very not key. Uh, it exists in several different places. Uh, let's see. So 20, 25 places. Ah, 25 places. I just discovered a feature edition that I want to add to CBQZ because I was actually looking it up in CBQZ just then. And I was like, oh, I'm not going to count this many. So, yeah, I mean, the, certainly it does not exist in chapter 7. It d doesn't exist in chapter 7, verse 1. But it's, I, I just, it's, so looking at the number of times and placements of it, it just does not seem key enough to take, uh, at least in my mind, to take it out of, uh, the quizzer out of context. Now, that being said, uh, this is a, a bit on the subjective side of things. Yeah, because I, I definitely have been in conversations like, what does out of context mean? Does it mean that they're in a different context in the material that we are studying? Or does it mean that they are not in this context? So, I mean, I can say um, unequivocally that 
the quizzer was not in this verse, which is the context for this question, but I can't say where they were. And to me, saying brothers and sisters, um, to me, was acceptable as a misquote and not and not specific enough for me to say that they went out of they went into another context, which is me being very specific about the wording that I'm using. Right. I'm saying I don't think they were in a different context. And some other people may say, well, they weren't in this context and that's all I need to know. And I, I can I can understand that that viewpoint. But I would have wanted them or I wouldn't have wanted them. But if they had connected brothers and sisters with maybe even only one word that I could say that they're in a different verse, that that probably would have been enough at that point. But dear friends, brothers and sisters, it didn't feel to me like they were quoting a different context. Yeah, and I would even argue against the viewpoint that being out of context is simply meaning being out of 7-1 because then how small – where do you draw the line? How how small do you draw it? I mean the word the word brothers does not exist in 7-1. Um, the word – uh, Jesus doesn't exist in seven one. At at what point, you know, how small do you get before you're you're counted out of context? The word that doesn't appear in seven one. Um, so you know, at what point do we actually draw that line? And it it seems really hard for me to draw that line in anything other than an incredibly subjective way until I have enough information that that puts them in a specific spot outside of seven one. Yep, and. To me, this is one of the places in the rule book where I am wholeheartedly for vagueness and subjectivity being put onto the quiz master because I think it is the best thing for quizzing and the best thing for quizzers that the definition of context be vague like this. Because if you think about why do we have context, well, it's because we're asking a question from a context and we don't want the quizzer to jump and just answer from a ton of different contexts and then maybe find the right one and get it correct. Um, and so to me, I'm putting the onus on myself to, to judge whether I think the quizzer has gone into a different context and that I know where that is. And until they do, I don't want to call them incorrect, which is why I like the rule that a quizzer saying a single word, even if it's a unique word, does not necessarily take them out of context. Now, it could be that to finish the verses both start with therefore, and the second word in one is a unique word. And if they're quoting from the other one and they say that unique word, well, I might be pretty strict at that point. You know, I said you started with these first two words from a different finish of the verse and one of them is a unique word. I think you went out of context because um, there is a high standard of quoting those verses. But um, for the most part, I think that the context rule exists so that the um, quiz master has to judge if the quizzer went into a different context in the material. And so that's why if a quizzer starts saying stuff that's from a different book or the Declaration of Independence – I may not immediately just go, hey, you're wrong, you're out of context. I'll probably just stay silent and look at the quizzer because I really want them to be in a different context in this material before I say you're wrong for going out of context. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Well, good. I'm glad that I did not rule them incorrect and that they quoted it correctly and got it right. So this next one, oh man, I don't know about this one. I think this happened in quiz, uh, it was either I or finals. But it was a chapter verse reference from 1 Corinthians 12.1, and my question was, what gift? And the answer is, the gifts of the Spirit. So the quizzer jumped. I had said, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1, what gift? And I kind of was in the middle of the word gift. And the quizzer stood up and immediately said, what gift? Um, singular. And then quoted, the gift of the Spirit. And I said again, and the quizzer quoted, the gifts of the Spirit. 
and I said, what is your question? And the quizzer gave, what gifts? So my question is, should I have counted the quizzer wrong immediately when they said, what gift? Because technically that would be an invalid reference question from the verse that the verse that's in question. And the thing that's tough about it is there are times where a quizzer will jump and then kind of either say what they heard or say what they think the reference question will be as the first thing that they say, even though strategically there's almost no point in doing that. Um, And I don't know how much I'm supposed to judge as the quiz master that they intended to provide me a reference question or if they were just saying something that they heard or not, you know? I really don't know. I mean, my inclination is really to, that I should have called the quizzer incorrect immediately because the rulebook does not require the quiz master to prompt the quizzer for their question before – like it, the quiz master does not have to have prompted the quizzer for a question that the quizzer provides to be counted correct. Like there are times where the quizzer's time is running down and then in, at second 28 they go, the spirit of God, what spirit? And they'll be counted correct because you know they gave the material and they provided the correct question. And so I don't think it's reasonable um, for the quiz master to decide whether or not they are in question providing mode or just saying something um, because then you could run into cases where clever quizzers just kind of cycle through a few questions and see if one of them gets them counted correct before they've really been formally prompted. And so to me, the quizzer providing what gift is incorrect. It's not the question on my card at all. Um, and I think I should have counted them wrong at that point. So for a reference question that's provided to me, it has to be valid, which means whatever phrasing or words the quizzer provides has to at least be verbatim from the text. So if the text says, so the man what, um, or my, that's what my question is, but the quizzer says, then the man what, they're incorrect because that that reference phrase does not exist in the verse. And so it's invalid because of that. Now. If the question on my card is, so the man what, and the quizzer says, the man what, I'm probably going to count them correct um, and not demand that they include the word so in the question. And so there, I think there is some latitude afforded to quiz masters. Like we're not forced to accept only the verbatim question, but they have to get all of the words that have a lot of meaning to them. Um, and So, I mean, you you wouldn't accept a so the person what. Or no. give the or give the chance for give the uh, the quizzer the chance to to fix that. Correct. So if if you know the question on my card is I am the one who what, and the quizzer's up there quoting and they're like I am the man that what I'm the one that what I'm the man who what I'll keep saying again 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 even though I would never need to say again if this was an interrogative question but because it's a reference question I need the verbatim words. Um, before I can prompt them for their from, for their question, because if they don't verbatim say the verse and then I prompt them, I have been misleading to them, because um, now they're providing a question based off of an incorrect uh, quoting of that verse. Because like it does feel very harsh because the quizzer just jumped, probably assumed that I had finished saying the word gift, and so they weren't providing the question what gift with full like thought of the verse and the context. But unfortunately, I don't think that's on me to be the judge of, right? Yeah, no, it's it's definitely not. And I can see your argument. I think I want to give a little bit more thought to this one. But yeah, I'm starting to kind of shift in my mindset on it. And I think, I mean, I think sometimes reference questions can get a bad rap because they're probably the most discussed as far as the rule book. And there are corner cases that come up that seem, you know, almost quizzer hostile. And I think it can get very intimidating to quizzers when really, I don't think they're very difficult um, if you've memorized the material. 
But I know that if I have a chapter reference in one verse that's, say, one person, or one chapter, it's one person. In a different chapter, it's one man. If you say the phrase from a different chapter, I will probably call you incorrect for being out of context, even though the difference between one person and one man is really, really slight. But when we're testing you on a reference question, I'm going to be more strict about context. And again, that is definitely my interpretation of the rules, that I have kind of a sliding scale of strictness when it comes to context based on if it's an interrogative multiple answer or if it's a reference question, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, and there there definitely is different levels of strictness, you know, for question types, even from the just the basic stuff of uh, the difference between a, a quote question and an interrogative. Uh, there's there's absolutely sliding scales. But that one is specifically called out that quote yeah, questions true. need to be quoted word perfect. And so this is just me saying, if I'm testing two reference phrases um, and you go into the other one, no matter how slight the difference, I'm going to call you incorrect, even if the difference in the two phrases wouldn't be enough for me to call you um, out of context if it was an interrogative question, which may not sit well with some people. Yeah, it would have been it would be nice to get a challenge on this one, too. I think it would be interesting to talk about this mid quiz. Um, perhaps if I wasn't the quiz master having to make that decision <laughs> under the gun. Right. Yeah, certainly a lot of pressure. <laughs> Shall we move on to our next one? Yeah, let's go for it. All right, let me pull it up here. It's 1 Corinthians 4.16. So that verse says... Actually, no. I have the wrong reference. Do you know where I am, Griffin? Yet inwardly. 2 Corinthians 4.16. Yes. The end of that verse says, Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. And so my question was, yet inwardly we are what? With the answer, being renewed day by day. The quizzer jumps after I had said yet inwardly or something like that and said, yet inwardly we are wasting away, then pauses and then later corrects themselves to um, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. And I counted them incorrect for providing incorrect information. Yes, I agree. I would also I would also count them incorrect. I would grimace and I wouldn't like it, um, but they are technically they are technically incorrect. They are in context. Uh, they are quoting the verse, but they provided an incorrect answer, unfortunately. So what about this situation? What if the quizzer had gotten up there and said, therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are being renewed day by day, yet inwardly we are wasting away, and said it like as a full verse, but just switched those last two phrases, which in a lot of ways is not different from how they answered my question. Okay, that's making my brain hurt. I think I would also call uh, see now if they're genuinely quoting and they and they hmm. so okay, but remember so remember the the term quoting does not exist in the rule book. There's no extra affordance yeah. given to a quizzer necessarily. I, yeah, I, I part of me is still thinking that it's it's still incorrect. I mean, if, if you're, if you flip those around, obviously, so let's say, let's do it this way. If they said the, the 416 the way you said 416, you wouldn't count them correct. Um, certainly, you know, the best that you could do is, is let them continue, like say it again, say again or something or say nothing. And they have the, the remaining 30 seconds to hopefully correct it. So they're definitely not correct yet. The question is whether or not they are incorrect at that point. And that I'm question. Yeah, and I'm starting to I'm 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 leaning towards the fact that they would be incorrect because they're they're by providing the information out of order they are providing incorrect information. That was the way I felt too. Um, it reminded me uh, of a, a past meet with a a ruling that is still hotly debated between myself and another person. 
uh, and I tried to remember the specifics of it, but it was from Matthew 6.20, I believe, that has the phrase, um, where moth and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. And my question was something like, where thieves what? As a reference multiple answer or whatnot. And the quizzer jumped and said, where thieves break in and steal. No, 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 no. Where thieves do not break in and steal. And I called them um, incorrect either for being in, for giving an incorrect answer or for going out of context to the previous verse. Um, and I just like, this is another case where the phrases are very, very similar. Um, and it, and as a quiz master, you're left to decide if the quizzer gave you incorrect information, um, enough to be counted incorrect. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't have the verse in front of me, but it sounds like I would probably side with you on that one as well. And, and these are tough cases, you know, when like one verse says like Jesus is the light if the quizzer says Jesus is not the light, are they just wrong at that point? Or is it an incorrect quoting that isn't incorrect information that they get to correct? You know, um, I think it can be a tough call a lot with these um, phrases that almost are the complete opposites of each other. So the meaning is completely different, but it still feels almost too much to count them incorrect. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's what I, what I was saying about, you know, first, first Corinthians 416, uh, you know, I would have grimaced at the, at making the ruling, but I think it's the right ruling. I wouldn't want to <laughs> count them incorrect, but I think counting them in, incorrect is the correct ruling. And just as a hint to you quizzers, when I counted that quizzer incorrect, I said, I'm going to count you incorrect first when you said, yet inwardly we're wasting away. I consider that to be incorrect information. And then I kind of paused and if as a quizzer you see me pause, it's because I'm allowing extra time for someone to challenge. Oh, I do that. I do that. Oh, I do that too. I do that exact same thing. I will like, I usually will try to go straight into the next question and do a very quick, uh, sort of clip through, uh, to keep the timing, uh, uh, going on a quiz. But there are times where if I'm not super, if if things could be challenged and I know that they could be challenged, I will pause a good, you know, three, four, five seconds and kind of look around or maybe not look around, but I'll just sort of fiddle with something on my on my uh, laptop uh, in hopes that somebody will will challenge. But I want to give that. So it's it's kind of this sort of little cue card for any uh, captains who are out there. If, if you see me pause uh, or I guess uh, Scott, too, if, if Scott and I pause, that might be an indication that there's an opportunity to challenge there. Yes, and going back to our uh, last week's podcast, I think if you just have the mindset always of being inquisitive about how a question's being answered and what the ruling is and what the reasoning is, is going to help um, help you make more challenges and help get you away from the notion that just because a quizmaster has done it for many years or thought a lot about a ruling means that they are above reproach. Um, and so I think if you already are starting from the standpoint of, hey, um, quizmasters to make subjective rulings, they can make mistakes, you'll be ready for a situation like that when the quizmaster does pause. Maybe you, there's something you were already thinking of. Because I wouldn't want, just because I'm pausing, a quizzer who wasn't thinking about anything to like stand up and then start thinking about what challenge they might want to make. Like That's not necessarily, not necessarily the point of it. But if there is a quizzer who was starting to think but wasn't quite sure, hadn't developed their thought. Like, I want to give them time to do so. Right, absolutely. And keep in mind, you know, if you if you spot a pause like that, you've you've got, you know, an inkling in the back of your mind that, that something isn't sitting right with you. You notice a pause from the quiz master. Go ahead and stand up. 
right? Uh, and because remember, you can always, I've, I've had, I, I don't think it's happened this year. I don't even think it happened last year, but there's definitely been times, at least maybe in ancient history, where a, a, a captain has, has stood up, uh, in preparation to challenge has been thinking about it for a few seconds and then decides no and then sits back down that's completely acceptable and and it's not counted against you quite correct well do you think we have time to jump into some a quiz mastering topic griffin yeah let's 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 uh, jump through this all right do you want me to lead it off yeah go for it so i think we're kind of just talking about what makes a good quiz master um and i think buttons. it all buttons well buttons yeah giving out buttons is definitely a, a good thing. Um, but I think the most important aspect of a good quiz master is their cadence and their consistency in that. Because quizzing, especially when you get to the more competitive levels, is all about timing. Just um, like little tenths of a syllable matter a, a huge amount. And teams and quizzers that are able to consistently hit a very specific jump speed target are going to succeed more than other teams. And if a quizmaster's ability or style doesn't allow for teams who have prepared to do that, then it's just going to make them a worse quizmaster. And when I say worse, I'm putting it through the the criteria that I'm using is how well can this quizmaster's style and whatnot um, identify the quizzers and teams that have both prepared the best and execute the best. And so when it comes down to cadence, it means reading at a pace that's deliberate enough for, the, for quizzers to be able to pick the speed that they want to jump at. If a quizmaster is reading so fast that a quizzer's only choice is between one syllable and four syllables, then that's really, really bad quiz mastering. Like, quizzers n- should be afforded the opportunity to jump at one syllable, a half syllable, one and three quarters syllables, two and a quarter syllable, because those tiny, tiny differences matter a ton. Like, if you're international, the difference between two syllables and a mouth shape and one and three quarter syllables is massive when it comes down to accuracy, like just massive. And if a quiz master reads too fast or spills over two syllables or something and um, quizzers aren't able to hit those precise jump marks, then it's kind of a, um, it's just really a luck based competition at that point. I think one of the, to use a sports analogy back when Tiger Woods was at his height and dominating golf tournaments, people said, he hits it so far, we've got to make the courses longer to tiger-proof them. Well, in my head, I said, hey, the longer you make these courses, the greater his advantage is going to be because of how far he can hit the ball. If you put every pro on a putt-putt course, they probably would be very similar to each other, and a lot of them would probably be able to beat Tiger. But if you make courses twice as long, he's going to win by even more. And I, and I kind of bring that analogy back to quizzing. If every jump the quiz master was just going to get out maybe two syllables, maybe five syllables, then there's almost no no value to preparing to jump at a very specific speed. You're just going to try to win jumps and hope to get something unique. Um, and that wouldn't be identifying the quizzers and teams that have actually prepared better than others. Do you have any thoughts so far, Griffin? Yeah, I completely agree. And this is where, you know, consistency and cadence and something is something that I care about and I I focus on. I do a terrible job at slowing down. I get too excited and I go way too fast. Um, I talk, uh, but I, but I have been trying to force myself 
to get into a, um, you know, sort of two different speeds, talking between questions, going at my normal light speed or ludicrous speed to try to get through to the question, and then slowing down in the calling of the question. Question number seven is, and, and there's always sort of that, it's almost like a metronome, right? Like, like, um, I don't have a metronome, but it's sort of like this sort of, um, question number seven is an interrogative. Question number seven, question, and then what? gifts or something like like the, there's a sort of metronomic tonality that needs to follow so that quizzers can sort of feel like okay i'm going to jump on the second syllable i i know when that's going to happen so i can get really close to it uh but yeah definitely speed is something that 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 uh, i i tend to go a little bit too fast on stopping is another is one of my you know pet peeves um i i've experienced quiz masters who will give out you know, uh, two or two or even three words of additional information. And that that just kills the uh, uh, kills a quiz, because then it's, it's sort of like, well, why wouldn't I just pre jump on everything? Because then exactly. I'll get the jump and I'll probably get a couple of words out of it anyway. That's what happens. Quizzers just jump faster and faster. And maybe unknowingly, quiz masters will then start reading faster and faster, which then causes quizzers to jump faster and faster. And then you have a completely luck based competition. Um, I had something in my head. Oh, yeah. Stopping. So some quiz masters um, are very talented, much more talented than I am, and can stop almost immediately when a quizzer's light comes on, and they're consistent about it. For me, I have some amount of material that I keep reading as I am processing seeing the light and stopping myself, but I've found that the only way for me to be consistent with the amount of material that I spill over is to not anticipate anything about the speed of the jump, and then as soon as I see a light do my best to stop reading. And I find that even if the amount that I spill over is more than some quiz masters, if it's consistent, then quizzers know exactly what to expect. Um, I find that much more preferable than trying to anticipate when quizzers are going to jump because then then I read poorly on references. Um, the flow is bad if a quizzer doesn't jump. Um, and it's just I think it's just a much more inconsistent product that I'm providing if I try to guess when a quizzer is going to jump. Yeah, and a lot of this is is equipment based. I mean, I've done this in in my room where uh, I've got this um uh you know a, a little computer program that 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 shows the uh the the this the LEDs that are they're not LEDs but they're just little lights on my computer screen based on the the seats that are plugged in. And uh unfortunately some of those lights uh especially the red ones are very difficult to see in terms of contrast they don't really light up very well and so even though I've got them you know quite literally about maybe an inch and a half away from the question that I'm reading sometimes they don't catch my eye and so uh, it, it's frustrating, uh, I think, uh, for me sometimes where I, I don't want to anticipate the jump exactly lo- like what you're talking about, because then I can, you know, kind of hiccup through something or I can stop prematurely and that's not fair and that's not appropriate. Uh, but at the same time, uh, there's uh, lights that, that pop on that are yellow. I think the, the colors are like yellow, green and red, or maybe it's blue. Um, but red always has a disadvantage on my screen because the, the contrast in the way that they've programmed these, these colors is, uh, uh, it's, it's too narrow, uh, on the red side relative to say yellow, right? And so if somebody from the red team, uh, jumps, they might get an, an extra syllable or two or even a whole word out of me. Uh, and that's, it's, uh, frustrating. It is. Well, luckily the, the draw is assigned randomly in cycles. Teams around rooms and stage placements. 
Yeah. And of course, keep in mind, Quizzers, you know, when I say red, I mean, it's, it's the, they're red lights on my screen. It has absolutely nothing to do with your bib color. Uh, so, so don't think, oh no, we're in Griffin's room and we have red bibs. It has nothing to do with that. It's, a, it's ent- entirely on the screen. And I do try very hard to account for that and pay very, very close attention to it, but it's, it's, uh, it's a bit frustrating. I'm sort of old school. I like, you know, everybody's LED is the same extraordinarily bright color. Uh, there's a beep that happens without delay as soon as somebody jumps, uh, because then it's just, it's, it's a lot more precise that way. And it's a lot fair, more fair that way, I think too. Oh, the dreaded beep, Griffin. I've fought with so, not fought, but I've tried to get so many quizmasters at internationals to turn off the beep. Well, so here's the thing. I don't like the beep, except that I like the beep. So I, I don't like the beep in terms of, I wish it wasn't there because it's a distraction. It breaks flow. Um, but it is better, I think, to have a beep and be more precise and fair than, you know, one team gets an extra couple of syllables and another team doesn't. Sure. I just hated right as the, the key point, which is when the quizmaster is stopping reading and you need that last quarter syllable, there's this loud beep that like floods into your perception. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I mean, some quizmasters, you know, when they stop, they... It's difficult to lip read sometimes, depending on what they're doing during the beep. That's correct. So I've got a few more things we'll hit quickly. One is my gap concept. And I think because timing is so important, it's not just timing of when you read the question. When you're like, question number one, question. From that last question on, that's not the only timing that matters at all. And so one thing I try to do is when I'm reading a question, you know, question one is an interrogative question. Question number one, pause. Question, pause. And then I start reading the question. I make, I, I try to have those two pauses be equal in length because it sets this really, really nice cadence for quizzers to know how long my pause is going to be right before the question starts. It's like a precursor. Question number one, question in the beginning. Got, and, and I work real, real hard for those to be equal because I think it's, it's almost, it's like the best experience I can imagine for a quizzer. You just you know the exact speed that the reading is going to come at you. You know exactly the pace of when the quizmaster is going to start reading the question, and you can lock in your jump and hit very, very, very discreet syllable jumps. So going on to a few things. Um, so um, I'll jump ahead a, a couple bullet points, but we within PNW, we need quizmasters for many reasons. We like to have backups. We want to have more than four quizmasters. Uh, quiz mastering during meets, and we want to be a lot better than we have been about training quiz masters. And so if you have any interest at all, we want quiz masters, and we're willing to train you. And don't be shy. Don't think I, I've quiz mastered very little. I would be bad at it. Like, we want to help you be a good quiz master. Um, and in that vein, Griffin and I have been thinking about what is it that makes a really good quiz master? Is it quizzing experience? Is it coaching experience? Is it quiz mastering experience? And it's kind of all of the above. I think um, it's not a shock that quizzers who were internationals quizzers and specialized in reference questions, like those quizzers usually make really good quiz masters. And I think that's because um, you're usually pretty detail-oriented if you specialize in reference questions, but you also intimately know how important timing is. Like when you were jumping, trying to hit just the reference and seeing the inflection of Quizmaster and all this stuff, like the timing matters a ton. And I think that's a huge reason that 
um, those types of quizzers lend themselves to being really good quiz masters. But I'm sure you can find really good quiz masters that come from all kinds of backgrounds. So again, we would love um, anyone who wants to be a quiz master, we would love to help you learn, have you run some quizzes at our scramble meet and maybe some other um, events in the off season to kind of get you in the swing of things. And don't think you have to be particularly good out of the gate. The 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 bar is you have to be better than Griffin. So it's a pretty low bar. Definitely. <laughs> so, uh, you know, yeah, if you have any kind of interest whatsoever, uh, please talk to uh, Scott or myself or any of the other uh, quiz masters. We definitely want to try to encourage people to uh, get involved. And I think it's a lot of fun quiz mastering. And I, I think we do have a lot of really good candidates for being a quiz master. So please let us know. And my last two points on things that make a good quiz master. Notice I haven't really gotten to anything about the rule book or ruling. Um, and I'm not really going to talk about that much. I think it is an important aspect and you should always be reading and rereading and wrestling with the rule book to make sure that you can make consistent rulings. But that's almost like, to me, that's a learned skill. Whereas a lot of this other stuff, not that it's not learned, but it's, it's a lot more innate or feel or things you kind of have to learn by doing. Whereas mastering the rulebook can be more of an academic exercise. But some other aspects of being a quiz master that are important is you have to manage the flow of a quiz. So question to question, in and out of timeouts, um, because you're the one setting the pace. And unless you set a specific pace, the quiz room will go slower than that. And so you have to make sure that you're in charge, you're vocalizing yourself, you're keeping things moving along. And kind of going along with that is owning the room. So you don't have to be dictatorial as a quiz master, but if there is a protest, you're the one in charge, right? So you have to know the protocol and say, all right, we're going to get the coaches and the officials, and we're going to go to a private space, and this is the time allotted to us, and let's talk this out. Um, and so kind of having that command of the room where you are in charge, um, but you are also um, a humble servant, I guess. that um, I think I'm overselling both aspects of that, but I think there is um, – a definite amount of leadership that you do have to have as a quiz master to keep things moving along and keep a, a general amount of order in the room. There are times where you're going to have to tell someone, hey, you got to be quiet or you got to leave the room or don't enter when I'm asking a question. Things like that that you will have to uh, be clear about. Right. I mean, there's there's also simple things like, you know, uh, in certain rooms, doors can be left open. So you'd you, you be right before you uh, start a quiz, you turn around, you notice the door is open. Hey, can somebody close the door for me, please? Uh, you'll find that you know, everybody is extremely willing to help out. It's a very friendly atmosphere. Uh, it's definitely not at all adversarial. Uh, but there's there's definitely that need to... If you're going to be a little bit nervous, I mean, we're all a little bit nervous when we get up there. Uh, it's, it's sort of bury it and just sort of take command of the room, uh, walk everything through in a consistent way, uh, uh, quiz to quiz to quiz. And, and I, I, I agree completely with what Scott said. It is extremely enjoyable. Uh, there's, there's something a little bit sad, you know, when Saturday, uh, comes around and you get to the end of the, the, the schedule in your room and you're like, that's the last quiz and you're tired, you're worn out. Uh, but you're kind of like, Oh gosh, I wish I had just one more quiz, you know, that kind of thing. There's an enormous amount of, uh, uh, fun that, that takes place, uh, behind that table as well. Yeah. You get to see how the sausage is made and you get to talk with your official about a tough ruling and you get to see the kids do really well at, in tough situations. It's, it's a lot of fun. 
Well, sounds great. Uh, one thing I did want to mention right before we close is uh, there is a CBQZ application. It's predominantly intended for quiz masters, uh, but anybody can use it, uh, quizzers and coaches. Uh, basically, you can write questions and run quizzes through it. If you're interested at all in taking a look at it, uh, go to cbqz.org and click on the app link or app button or something like that, and you'll have to create yourself an account. If you are from uh, the Pacific Northwest of CMA, we've already got a program set up for you to join. If you're not, uh, please email us at iq at cbqz.org, and we can get your uh, program, your local program set up for you within the system if you're curious about uh, checking out the application. Uh, I know it's very early. We're still in February, in, very early in, in terms of the length of our quizzing season, but next season uh, coming up is going to be John and the John Materials are uh, now available on cbqz.org if anybody wants to check those out. Uh, but you really shouldn't want to check those out yet because we are so early still in the season. There's still quite a bit of quizzing left to go in uh, Corinthians. And of course, as always, if you want to email the show, uh, you want to email us any sorts of questions uh, or comments or feedback, please do so at iq at cbqz.org and follow us at uh, on Twitter at Inside Quizzing. Yeah, that's all I have, Griffin. All right. Well, then I will close with uh, quoting from Chapter 9. Uh, this service that uh, you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, Griffin. See you all next week. 